Well, this Tuesday, October the 31st, marks 500 years since Martin Luther posted his 95 Thesis to the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. Those of y'all that have been here with us, you, you've heard that event talked about more than a few times, right? Very, very important event. That event, though Luther didn't know it at the time, sparked a great awakening within the church that would bring about reform and completely change the church and the world forever. As many of you know, I love focusing on this event, Christian history. I love studying about, about Luther and studying about the events surrounding Luther's life. I especially love learning about the events that led Luther to do what he did. I love reading about and studying his journey and, and his, his uh, path toward this discovery. One of the most popular teachings today, in that day it was indulgences, his teaching against indulgences, that's a bit removed from us, but one of the most popular teachings today from that 95 thesis is number 62, where Luther says that the true treasure of the church is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. This was a statement that's not just true scripturally, it was not just true of Luther's theology, but true in his life. No one in his day treasured the gospel more than Luther. Now, he did not always feel that way. He actually suffered emotionally and spiritually and at times physically for many years as a result of his ignorance of what the true gospel is, what it teaches for a time, Luther believed, because they were taught this in the monastery and in the church, that to be saved, though faith was involved, you were not saved by faith alone, but also by works. In Luther's day, though the, the church taught that people were sinners in need of, of Jesus, there was also what was called works of satisfaction. Those in the church at that time taught that through performing certain tasks, one could be restored to God and once again be in a right standing with Him. And so Luther did the best he could to try to meet the demands of God's command. And so much so, he went to such an extent to do that that they gave him a nickname, the Monk's Monk. That was what they called Luther. But Luther did not find the peace he so desperately wanted from his acts of devotion. He desperately wanted peace of mind, desperately wanted deliverance from the guilt he felt from his own sin. He was miserable. He wanted deliverance but found none. You see, as Luther thought on the biblical law of God day after day, he became more and more overwhelmed by his guilt. He pictured God as a judge who only had wrath for the sinner. He pictured him just sort of standing over him, wanting to crush him. He viewed God as a God who only has wrath for the sinner. It got so bad that it got to the point when Luther was asked if he loved God, he said, love God? Sometimes I hate him. Because he thought, if God requires me to be perfect, 
I'm sunk. He knew he was a wretch. He knew he fell infinitely short of God's perfect standard. But Luther's tone changed, however, when he began to study and teach the Word of God. Because through the study of Scripture and the teaching of Scripture, Luther learned that not only is God a just God who requires perfection, but God also gives us the righteousness He requires of us. He sent us Jesus to live the perfect life we could never live, to fulfill all the demands of the law. And Jesus also laid His perfect life down as our substitute and perfect sacrifice so that we, through faith alone, in Christ alone, could have our sin transferred to Jesus and His righteousness applied to us. Luther came to that discovery, began to teach that, this, about that rediscovery, and what happened as a result, they say, is history. We're here today as a result of God's work through those reformers, teaching what we teach Sunday after Sunday, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's why I love studying about and learning about Luther's rediscovery of the truth of God's gospel. Another thing I love about this time period is that the beliefs and teachings of many of the leaders in the church in Luther's day were similar to the beliefs and practices of the Jewish people in Jesus' day. As we've talked about in Hebrews, the old system, the old covenant was still in place especially during Jesus' earthly ministry, right? Before he, he laid his life down and rose from the grave, still in place at this time. And like we've said in Hebrews, though the old system showed man his sin and need for salvation could not provide the solution. Now, there were certain leaders in this day who believed their outward acts of devotion would cut it, would make them right. But there were other Jewish people who had more of an eye for their sinfulness like Luther and, and they knew they needed relief from sin. That's why they flocked to men like John the Baptist and later to Jesus. God was doing a work in them to awaken them to this. And Jesus, like Luther did to those in the Catholic Church in his day, he takes the Jews to the Scripture and, and at times uses the law to show them that there is nothing they can do on their own power, in their own strength, to be made right with God. So this morning we're going to look at one of those encounters. Great passage for Reformation Sunday, John chapter 3. John 3. Taking a break from our study through Hebrews. We'll be back in Hebrews next week, and I promise we'll finish that book someday. Okay? But not today and not next week. But it's coming. It's coming. This morning we are remembering the Reformation by looking at a very popular, very important passage of Scripture. In this passage we are going to study this morning, we are going to peek in to a private conversation between Jesus and a man named Nicodemus. And Jesus is going to share with him 
the life-changing message of the gospel. The message that changed Luther and that transformed the church. John 3. We're, we're going to see Jesus explain to Nicodemus how to be saved. First, here's the first point. He tells them, for one to be saved, they must realize the spiritual problem. They must realize that man has, that there is a real spiritual problem. In, in any 12-step program for alcoholics or, or drug addicts, the first step is to realize and admit you have a problem. Same is true in salvation. Before a person can be saved, he or she must realize they're lost. They must realize they have a spiritual problem. They must realize they're a sinner in need of a Savior. Now, here's the issue. Just like an addict, many sinners are in denial, thinking they don't need saving. Many think, you know, I'm not that bad. Not as bad as that guy over there or that girl over there, right? Some will take this approach. They'll say, yeah, I know I'm not perfect, but come on, who is, right? They think, surely I'm good enough. Surely God will overlook some of my shortcomings and my minor hang-ups. Maybe that's the mentality of some of you here this morning. If so, let me point out the fact that it's significant in this passage here that this dialogue about salvation takes place with a guy like Nicodemus. John, in, in mentioning this encounter, is trying to tell us something significant about salvation. He's showing us here that if a guy like Nicodemus needs saving, get this, we all need it. If, if he's not exempt, no one is. If he is not the exception, then there are none. He, he's showing us in this story that if Nicodemus needs to be saved, we all need to be saved. For you to really understand that, I need to share a little bit more with you about Nicodemus. First, notice this. Next point. Nicodemus was an impressive man. Many pastors and church leaders have spent a lot of time focusing in on the accolades of the Apostle Paul from Scripture about how impressive he was in the Jewish community because of his education and influence. Listen, Nicodemus is in the ballpark here, folks. He was devout. Look at verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. The Pharisees, as many of you know, was an elite religious group. Their name literally meant separate ones. They were set apart from others in that day because of their knowledge of the Scriptures, because of their devotion to God. And Nicodemus is in this group. Martin Luther was known for his devotion, right, to the monastery. And we said a moment ago, he was so devoted that, that he was often referred to as the monk's monk. If Luther was the monk's monk, then Nicodemus was the Pharisee's Pharisee. He was serious about his beliefs and pious in practice. He was a leader among the leaders. End of verse 1. He was a ruler of the Jews. Nicodemus was in an elite religious group, even more elite than the Pharisees. 
He held a position of authority among the Pharisees. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. And while there were thousands of Pharisees, there are only 70 Sanhedrin, plus one, the high priest who was the head of it all, right? To be a member, to be a member of the Sanhedrin, this was considered to be one of the highest honors among the Jews. So Nicodemus is the real deal. He was a devout man, a leader. He was an impressive man, but he was also, next point, a lost man. He was an impressive man, but he was a lost man. Look at verse 2. He came to Jesus by night, said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs you do unless God is with him. So, so notice here that this impressive and respected religious leader approaches Jesus to inquire about him. Comes to Jesus at night. Some make a big deal about that. They try to say that shows he was a prideful man. He probably was a prideful man. But, but they, they say he was prideful. It shows he's prideful by coming at night, not wanting anybody to see him meeting with Jesus. We're not really told that here. He might have gone at night to get a private meeting with Jesus because both of them were so busy during the day. I mean, a member of the Sanhedrin would have been very, very busy. And we know through the gospel accounts that Jesus was busy as well, traveling around, constantly surrounded by people throughout the day. So this might have been the only time these two could have a private conversation. I believe Nicodemus was also sent. We'll look at that in a minute. So he comes to Jesus at night. He says, Rabbi. Now, that term rabbi is a Hebrew title, which means great one. It was a term often used to describe a teacher of a high office. It's a term of respect. Some question whether or not Nicodemus came in a respectful way. I believe he did. He's coming to Jesus respectfully, earnestly, inquiring about him, but he's also completely ignorant and lost spiritually. He says, we, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs you do unless God is with them. So Nicodemus acknowledges that Jesus is a teacher from God because of the great signs that he was obviously doing, we know about, that he was doing in around Jerusalem. He knows Jesus is special. He shows respect for him. Look at verse 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, as far as we know here, Nicodemus has not yet asked Jesus a question. He, he's just acknowledged that Jesus is a great teacher and miracle worker, and Jesus completely bypasses that and gets to the heart of the matter. I believe because he knows the condition of Nicodemus's heart and what Nicodemus needs most. He looks beyond Nicodemus's impressive religious resume, beyond his flattery, beyond this topic of miracles, and looks into the heart of this man and he sees that Nicodemus needs salvation. He needs to be changed completely from the inside out. He tells Nicodemus here, if you want to see the kingdom of God, you want to have a relationship with the one true and living God, want him to rule and reign your life, you want to spend eternity with him, you got to scrap 
all that you've been doing up until now. You have to be born again. Now again, it's significant that Jesus tells this to Nicodemus. There was no one more devout or pious than him. Same was true for Luther in his day. Everyone in Luther's day except for God and Luther thought Luther was right with God. Luther is a bit different from Nicodemus in this way. He's still blind at that time to, his, to the work that Christ had done, but, but his eyes are open a little bit more to his sinfulness. Nicodemus is more blind than Luther here. Both blind, though. Jesus says, Nicodemus, you're a million miles off the mark. For you to be right with God, you have to completely scrap what you've been doing up until now and be born again. We learn a very important truth there. We learn there is no amount of work that we can do, no amount of religious accomplishments that we can have, no amount of quality characteristics that we can possess that will make us right with God. Luther understood this. Took Nicodemus a bit to understand it. But folks, we need to understand this as well. No matter how much effort we put in, no matter how many things we give up, no matter how reverent and humble we are, that doesn't move us one step closer to God. We all, every one of us, without exception, have a spiritual problem, a serious spiritual problem. We enter into this wor world fallen. We enter into this life broken, and there is not a thing we can do about it to fix it on our own. So when, when answering the question, what must one do to be saved? First, we must understand that we have a spiritual problem. Second, here's the second major point. We must look to God for the spiritual solution. Nicodemus is completely floored by this news. Yet though that's the case, he's in the right place, speaking to the right person for answers to his spiritual problem. Look at verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Goodness gracious. He is confused, isn't he? Probably, probably a little bit of sarcasm, maybe, on that response. In verses 1 through 3, we, we learn that this impressive Pharisee named Nicodemus has come to Jesus to have a private conversation with him, probably hoping for a pat on the back, right? An attaboy, probably hoping that Jesus is going to, to assure him he's on the right track, head in the right direction. Instead, Jesus lets him know you are nowhere close. You need salvation. He lets Nicodemus know for him or for anyone else to see the kingdom of God, they must be born again. Nicodemus is completely confused by this response here. He's thinking, born again? How on earth can that happen? All this time, Nicodemus thought he had things figured out. And Jesus comes along in a matter of moments and tells him of something he knows nothing about. So Jesus continues to explain to Nicodemus by revealing another important truth. He tells Nicodemus that salvation is solely a work that God does. God is the one who saves, and only God. Nicodemus thought that he played a role in it. He was wrong. God alone saves. 
And one way he saves is through the work of his spirit. That's the next point. God saves through the work of his spirit. Look at verse 5. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now let's stop there for a minute. It's an important verse that's been explained all sorts of ways. One of the most common ways that people explain this verse today is that Jesus was talking about two births here, a physical and a spiritual birth. Many believe that the mention of water here refers to the release of fluid that accompanies a physical birth, so we've all been born physically, and then the birth of the Spirit is a spiritual birth. But what many fail to see here is that in the, in the wording here, mentioning water and, and Spirit, Jesus is referring here to a single event. Some is lost in translation. He's talking about a single event here. A single spiritual birth. He's not talking about two separate births here, but one single spiritual one. You know, oftentimes we allow our context to help us in interpreting the text for us, and that doesn't help us very much. We end up way off. Instead, we need to understand what the words meant to the original hearer. That's the way we need to interpret Scripture. In that day, when water was mentioned in a spiritual sense to the Jews, they would have understood it to mean cleansing. It refers to a cleansing. To the Jews, water meant cleansing. So in Nicodemus's mind, when Jesus mentions being born of water and the Spirit, his mind would have probably gone to Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25 and 26 you have in your Scripture reading this week. I'll read it for you. It says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart. Boy, they talked about this interior work in the Old Testament. Do you see that? It's not an outward work. It's an inward work. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you, and I'll remove the heart of stone, from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So Jesus in verse 5 answers Nicodemus's question by referring to this cleansing. He's saying, except a man be cleansed from the inside out, except a man be purified, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now, that would have made sense to some Jews in this day about the need for being cleansed, right? But they were lost on this inward work that needed to be done. That was kind of lost on them, though it's clearly spoken of in the Old Testament. Look at verse 6. He says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Notice the credit Jesus gives here is to the Holy Spirit. In verse 5, he informs Nicodemus that for one to be born again, he or she must be cleansed from the inside out. Here in verse 6, he lets him know that this cleansing, this transformation is an inside job accomplished by the Holy Spirit. He says, oh, by the way, Nicodemus, this cleansing I'm talking about, it must take place from within, and it's a work of the Spirit. He says, that which is born of flesh is flesh. Meaning, if you've just experienced the physical birth, that's all you got. Without a spiritual birth, you are lost, spiritually. 
You can't transform yourself from the inside out. That which is flesh is flesh. No matter the works of devotion you perform, no matter the religious titles you acquire, without the Spirit's work within you, those are all for naught. Because that which is born of flesh is flesh. Only that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Jesus says, only the Spirit of God can get in and recreate you. Just like a leopard can't get rid of its spots, you can't get rid of your sin, Nicodemus. But the Spirit can. This, this transformation, this cleansing, is an inside job done by the Holy Spirit. And boy, this is tough for Nicodemus. Tough pill for him to swallow. And Jesus knows it. Which is why he says in verse 7, Do not marvel that I said you must be born again. Jesus responds in this way because Nicodemus is floored by the news. I mean, his worldview has been shattered. All of these years, he thought he had been moving closer to where he needed to be. He had been working tirelessly to move up the religious ladder to get closer and closer to God. And Jesus, in a matter of moments, completely shatters that. Nicodemus has been abiding by the rules, obeying all the laws of Judaism, observing all the sacrifices, all the rituals, all the feasts, hoping to hear from Jesus, you're getting really close. And Jesus says, you're a world away. You cannot see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. You got to scrap all you've been doing. You got to realize that none of your works that you have done from day one till now have brought you one step closer to God. Only God can move you closer to God. And He does it by changing you from the inside out through the work of the Holy Spirit. Nicodemus is still confused probably thinking, surely I, I play some sort of role in my salvation. Surely there's, there's something external that I can do, something that I can work for and achieve. It's got to be. Jesus says, let me illustrate it for you. Verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus gives an illustration of the wind here says, consider the wind. You can't see the wind, can you? You can't tell me where it comes from or where it goes, yet you know it's there. You see the results, right? You see the trees bend. You feel the wind against your body, but you don't see the wind. Jesus says, that's the way the Spirit works in salvation. Though you don't see the Spirit, He comes without warning, and you definitely see the results. That's Jesus' point. Well, poor Nicodemus... Still having a tough time with this truth. Look at verse 9. He says, how can these things be? Jesus knows. He's known all along, but he knows by Nicodemus' words now, he is dealing with a hard-hearted, thick-headed Pharisee. So he gets a little more forceful with his response. Look at verse 10. Are you a teacher of Israel, yet you do not understand these things? He says, aren't you a, aren't you a Pharisee? a prestigious member of the Sanhedrin, yet you did not know that salvation is an inside job? You, you didn't know that salvation is solely a work of the Holy Spirit? What are they teaching you in seminary school? That's a little added emphasis there. That's me. 
And I think that's what he's getting at, don't you? Well, Jesus knows Nicodemus is still not getting it. Knowing he's still not where he needs to be, he continues to explain to him a bit further. He not only tells him that God is the one who saves through the work of his spirit, but he also informs Nicodemus that God also saves through the person and work of his son. That's the next point. God saves through the person and work of Jesus. In the following verses, Jesus opens up to Nicodemus a bit further, telling him the reason that he has come to earth. But before he does, notice he addresses Nicodemus' unbelief a bit further. Back in John 3, 9, Nicodemus says, how can these things be? He's indicating he's got some doubts. So Jesus, beginning in verse 11, addresses Nicodemus' unbelief. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. So notice Jesus is speaking in the plural here. It's not by accident. Some people have tried to over-spiritualize that and say that Jesus is referring to himself as Trinity here, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but that's taking it where, it where it does not go, I believe, and taking it a bit far. In context here, I believe Jesus is speaking about he and his followers. And he's responding to Nicodemus' comments in verse 2. Nicodemus first comes to Jesus on behalf of the other religious leaders in the community. He says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who comes from God. Well, Jesus responds in verse 11 by telling Nicodemus, well, Nicodemus, I've heard what you and your colleagues think. Now let me tell you what we, me and my disciples, know. We, we know what we're talking about when we speak about the things of God. Now, the disciples were still a little bit in the dark at this time, right? But we know that, that they're going to be given insight from the Spirit of God and go out and make these truths known, right? But he says, we know what we're talking about when we speak about the things of God. But you, and the you here is plural, you and your guys have responded in unbelief. You and your boys have not believed our testimony. Now, what was Nicodemus' problem? Why didn't he believe? I believe it's because he didn't want to believe. All this time, Nicodemus thought he held all the cards. He, he thought salvation was a work of Nicodemus. He didn't want to scratch all that and start over. He liked thinking that he was in control, that he was on his way, that he had the answers, but Jesus lets him know that he doesn't. Look at verse 12. He says, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe it, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Jesus is really putting this religious leader in his place here. He basically says, Nicodemus, you may be thought of around this community as a teacher from God, an expert on heavenly things, but I tell you, you don't even have a grasp on earthly things. I've been sharing with you about the simple, basic truth. You must be born again from above, transformed by God from the inside out. You can't even grasp that. You question that. What I've shared with you is an earthly thing, a miraculous work that God does here, right here in the here and now on planet Earth. And believers, it is. When I was born again, when I was transformed from the inside out, it was a miraculous work that God did in my heart and life right here on planet Earth. Fayetteville, Arkansas, summer of 2001. 
Jesus says to Nicodemus, if you can't even accept that part, the part that takes place here on earth, how are you going to handle the deeper heavenly things of God? Jesus is not moving away from this, this, issue, this issue, this subject of being born again because Nicodemus is not getting it yet. And he's also humbling Nicodemus even further, telling him, though he has a lot of impressive titles by his name, is viewed by many as an expert on the things of God, he is really still in preschool when it comes to the deeper truths of the gospel. Look at verse 13. Jesus says this, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. I love this verse. This is a great response to the religious in our world. There are many religious people, Nicodemus included, trying to ascend to heaven, trying to reach God through religious effort and devotion. Jesus says no one's ever done that. You don't reach the truth by doing that. You don't reach God. Come to understand Him and come to saving faith through your own human effort and personal devotion. The only way to get to God is if God reaches down to you. And that is exactly what He's done. Jesus lets him know that in verses 13 through 15. He lets him know God has, in fact, come down for this reason. He has taken on flesh. He has moved into the neighborhood. He has condescended down in the person of Jesus to reveal these truths about the Father and the, the Spirit and His kingdom and has also come to accomplish salvation for His people. Look at verse 14. Jesus gives a great illustration here explaining the work that the Father sent him to accomplish. He says this, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. He says, For this new birth to occur, the Son of Man must be lifted up like the serpent in the wilderness. Now what on earth does that mean? Well, context helps here. Remember, he's talking to Nicodemus, a Jewish man who, who was skilled in the teachings of the Old Testament, right? And Jesus is taking him back to an event that took place in Numbers 21. Nicodemus would have known about this. Not a lot of explaining needed uh, to him on this one. In Numbers 21 while Moses and the children of Israel were, were in the wilderness, there was a lot of complaining going on. Complaining about God's people and complaining toward uh, complaints being made toward God himself. And God finally gets to the point where he says enough is enough and he punishes them by sending a plague. He sends deadly snakes into the camp and those snakes strike the Israelites. So, so God punishes them for their sinfulness, but he doesn't leave them in that desperate state. He gives them a chance for rescue. He tells Moses, make a bronze serpent, 
place it on a pole, set it up in the center of camp, and he says, anyone who looks upon that serpent will have rescue. They will be healed instantly. So Moses does just that. He makes a bronze serpent, puts it on a pole, sets it up, many look to it, and many are healed. And Jesus is using that to show Nicodemus something here very, very important. He says to Nicodemus here, it's just the same with me. Men today have been infected by sin. And they're in a bad way and are in desperate need of rescue. They need to be restored. And I, like Moses, am going to provide a way for that to happen. But a bronze serpent is not going to be lifted up this time. He says, I myself am going to be lifted up. And of course, he's talking about his death here, right? And when he says, when I am lifted up, when, when, when I give my life, he says, I am giving it in man's place so that those who look to me, those who trust in me, verse 15, whoever believes in me will have eternal life. Folks, that's what Christ has done for us. He has offered up his own life as payment for our sin, as a substitute for, for ours. He has done it so that we can see the consequences of sin. If you don't see the consequences of sin by seeing what Jesus had to endure in your place, your eyes aren't open. We see the consequences of our sin at Calvary, but we also see our rescue as well. That's what Nicodemus needed. Not more trips to the temple, not more acts of service, not more laws to abide by, not more prayers to recite, not more acts of devotion to perform. Nicodemus needed the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He needed to see that he was, he was a condemned sinner in need of a Savior, and he needed Christ's work applied to his life. He needed to know Jesus as Savior. He needed to reject his filthy rags he called good works and trust in the saving work of the Lord alone for salvation that's what Nicodemus needed that's what Luther needed not more pious outward acts of devotion not more trips to the confessional not more pilgrimages to, to Rome Luther needed Christ's righteous life in exchange for for his sinful one. And, and that's what we need as well. That's what we need. Folks, if you don't hear anything else this morning, hear this. Listen. You can work as hard as you want to make changes in this life. You can be involved in a dozen or more charities, a dozen or more ministries. You can devote your life to helping and serving others. You can give all your money away to various charities, and that won't change a thing about you in the eyes of God. It won't make you right with Him. There's not a thing you can do on your own, in your own strength, to make yourself right with God. If that was true for Nicodemus, if that was true for Luther, believe me, it's true for you. It is. You must be born again. 
You must be changed from the inside out. You must realize that you're a sinner in need of a Savior and you must turn from that sin, forsake that sin, and turn to and trust in the one who's been lifted up for you, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has died in your place so that you might have life. You must trust in Him and in Him alone for your salvation, for you to be saved.